This morning we're going to be looking at the matter of salvation. It's a little bit different type of a message, for me anyway. Uh, Title it, Salvation by Faith. What does it mean and does it matter? Do words really matter? If you would, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And after you find your place, if you would stand and follow along with me as read verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. A very familiar passage, I would imagine, for most of us here today. Ephesians 2 begins verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray, please. Father, we thank you again for such a beautiful Lord's Day to be able to come together to worship Thee through the times of fellowship, the singing, the times of prayer, the reading, the teaching, the preaching of Thy Word. You know the heart of each one of us that are here today. And Father, I pray for the work in Thy Spirit through Thy Word in our hearts. We need instruction. We need encouragement. We need to be reproved and rebuked that we may grow. And Father, I pray that you would use us in that way for your honor and for your glory. Again, you know the heart of each that is here. And if there's any here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as their Savior, I pray that there would be such conviction brought upon their heart today uh, that they could not deny it. And Father, I pray that they would humble themselves today. And today would be the day of their salvation as well. In Jesus' name we thank them. we pray. Amen. Please be seated. A passage that we're familiar with, most of us, uh, and to be honest with you, it's probably one of the most challenging uh, messages I've ever had to try uh, to prepare for. I don't know why, except that I really believe the importance uh, of what's in this passage and what we're going to be looking at this morning. When opportunities to do pulpit supply or fill-in like this, obviously you're not going through a series uh, to build on. And I always pray that it'll be the message that God would have for those that we're going to be meeting with and to be together with. And one of the things I rely upon is for my own Bible reading and devotions for God to direct through that to something specific. Finishing Ezekiel this week, one of the passages that just really anchored in in times for meditation that really led to this is Ezekiel 18, verse 30, 
Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. As we look this morning, we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. Don't, please don't try turning to all of them. I don't apologize for using a lot of scripture. I'd rather scripture speak than me speak anyway. Uh, so as we're looking at scriptures, it's really to help to ground in our hearts and our understanding what God's word truly does say. Uh, that it's not just a, a cherry picking to get a few scriptures out of this. I'd encourage you to jot them down to later go back and to look at them. But, and sorry, I don't carry change in my pocket. Uh, Canada, you have to get to a $5 bill before you have anything that's paper anyway. Uh, I use plastic. Uh, after some back problems and neuropathy, I just quit carrying anything in my pockets that I didn't absolutely have to carry. And wish I had a coin to hold up here for you today. Because when we look at a coin, we see the head and the tail. And you've, many of you have heard this illustration before. You've heard, we have the head and the tail. And you say, which one is the quarter? Which one is the nickel? It takes both of them to make it, doesn't it? And for the matter of salvation, the passage that we read in Ephesians 2 talks about faith. Did we read anything about repentance per se when we read that passage? We did not. And it's uh, one of the passages that unfortunately is used to create a great deal of confusion for many regarding the matter of salvation. As we read that passage, we're going to look at it just a bit in a little anyway. We need to be reminded we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. Does not matter how good things are going. Doesn't matter how bright the sun is shining, how easy the deer are to shoot, how good the fish are biting. Doesn't matter how few weeds are in the garden. How good it seems like everything is going. We're still in the midst of a spiritual warfare. And we need to be careful that we never, ever take that for granted. And as we look in Scripture, beginning in Genesis, what is a primary tool that Satan and his workers use in spiritual warfare? It's to confuse the Word of God, isn't it? Yet the Word of God is given to be simply understood. The author, the Holy Spirit, is the one that gives us understanding. And Satan would try to create confusion. And we're going to look at it a little bit, but Ephesians 2 is one of those passages that is used to create confusion. We need to be not be fearful to identify something as being another gospel when it truly is another gospel. Anything that deviates the least little bit from what God's Word clearly establishes as the gospel of salvation is another gospel that's being preached, and we need to call it so. Not in a wrong manner, not to create confusion or a wrong type of a conflict, but we need to identify to help it save and protect others. I don't know if you take time when you're traveling or around where of looking at tracts from other churches or tracts that people hand out or tracts that people leave in different places. But if you look at tracts today, it's very difficult to find tracts that clearly present the gospel of salvation to explain what repentance is and what faith is. Most just jump to what they call faith. Yet, in fact, we cannot have saving faith without having repentance. And repentance is going to drive one to that matter of saving faith. Romans Road, which many of you may be very familiar with. When I was in college at Clemson, uh, Clemson Christian, or Campus Crusade, 
was one that I went to, some that had what they called the four spiritual laws. Uh, uh, and it's going through all these easy things of questions. But Romans Road, one that is used, and what is in the Romans Road is not wrong. But for somebody that has not been time spent with in Scripture, it's not complete understanding either. I appreciated Brother Hoyle's testimony this morning regarding Braxton of the consistency of the testimony that we saw during your special uh, revival services when some folks came forward that it wasn't a matter to just get them into a back room and to pray, but to make sure that the time is spent to teach them through Scripture so they have an understanding. Because we're going to say this morning, there cannot, I don't care what you say, there cannot be salvation without an understanding of God's Word, to understand who God is, what sin is, who I am, and to come to that point of repentance. But the Romans wrote is all Scripture. It starts with identifying that every man has a problem from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then it says there's a peril that results from that sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. It identifies God's provision in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then it culminates with the response that's necessary in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Those are all true. They're all scripture. But if that is all that is given to somebody, are they going to have an understanding to truly come to the point of salvation. They may make an emotional decision, but they're not going to be able to come to the point of true salvation. Within the circles of what's called independent fundamental Baptist, and these are names of men that are no longer living, but they're names that had a tremendous influence that you may recognize. Curtis Hudson said, The problem and confusion is not preaching repentance, but attaching the wrong definition to the word. For instance, to say that repentance means to turn from sin, or to say that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action, is to give a wrong definition to the word. I'm not sure where he went to find his definition for repentance. As we're going to see this morning, God's word clearly gives us the definition of repentance. Jack Hiles, and many of you may be familiar with some of the error that he went into in his teaching, his preaching. Uh, when we were uh, looking for possibility of a church ministry after we came back, one of the churches that we went to, one of the men in the church had been a pastor, uh, had a stroke, was no longer able to pastor. And then we went just to visit the church. It was a missionary that had started the church. It was in the Midwest. This man knew everything about me. He had obviously read my resume, my doctrinal statement, uh, knew about me. He came up to me first thing and he said, what do you believe about repentance? When I told him, he said, we need to talk. He said, that's very important to me. I agree. And after the service, the pastor said, brother so-and-so has something he wants to give you before you come over to our house. So I went by his house, and it was a chapter out of a book that Jack Hiles wrote, a chapter on repentance. He had highlighted it, a number of things in it, and told me he wanted me to write a paper on what I thought of that to send to him. So I talked to the missionary pastor and said, I would be glad to write the paper. I will send you a copy too. And he encouraged me to do so. 
Uh, but in that paper and this, or in the article, this is what Jack Heil says. First, we need to find out what makes one lost. And he goes to a passage in uh, John chapter 3. And he says, it's very plain from this verse what makes a person lost. Notice the words, he that believeth not is condemned already. He went on to say, what makes the wrath of God abide on a person? Believing not. What he says is it's believing not. So from what must a person repent in order to be saved? He must repent of that which makes him lost. Since believing not makes him lost, believing makes him saved. The repentance, there is a turning from the thing that keeps him from being lost to the thing that saves him. So repentance is turning from unbelief to belief. Jack Howells was a master of presenting a false dichotomy to get you thinking one direction and then taking you off in the direction he wants to take you off in so you're not thinking. You're not using scripture for the foundation. And uh, one of the things I started the paper with is I do not believe that you could save Adam and Eve that they did not believe. Uh, they definitely believed. That was not what uh, the sin was that they had to be repenting of. It is rebellion against God, and it's a turn from that rebellion. But one of the reasons, and I know oftentimes it's on a <clears throat> basis of good intentions of wanting to see people saved, uh, of, of concern for those that are lost, we sometimes begin to try to, well, how easy can I make it in order for them to hear it? God's word makes it absolutely simple. It's a matter, and the struggle is man's heart. And it's when we deviate from that simplicity. A man that was very gracious toward us and definitely loved the Lord, and I believe definitely saved and now with the Lord. Uh, but every time we would come back to North Carolina, he would uh, take our vehicle to his shop and he would do a transmission flush, new tires, brakes. I mean, he was very, very gracious to us. Uh, one of our trips back, he took me to breakfast to talk a little bit, and he said, you need to understand you're too hard. He said, you need to just get people to join your church to get the church built. And then they'll get saved after they're in there and working. And that's the philosophy that comes behind some of this. Of uh, If you ask somebody, do you want to be saved and go to heaven? And that's as far as you go. Most people are going to say, yeah, that's not too hard, is it? Without going through the understanding. I want us this morning, things that may be repetitious to you. If they're repetitious, praise the Lord, then it reinforces in your heart. We need to be strengthened. We need to be reminded and encouraged, but we need to be able to be skillful uh, workers with God's Word. If you're here this morning and you say, wait a minute, I'm not even sure about that, that yeah, I've prayed the prayer, but you realize that I haven't really, this matter of repentance, I've never repented. Well, then you don't have saving faith. And we need to understand I don't know if you ever heard me say, well, I'm not a believer, or I don't have faith. We were doing Bible study for Pastor Webb one week over in uh, Chapel Hill at one of the nursing homes, and a lady wanted to get her flu shot, which was the next thing after the Bible study. I want to be first in line. So she came in, and all the way to her seat, she kept saying, I'm not a believer, I'm not a believer. And she, uh, the message was one that was... Uh, she took her hearing aid out. She put it back in. She was everything she could to not hear. She is a believer. It's a matter of what is it that she believes in. 
Every person has faith. What is it that the faith is established upon? Is it your intellect? Is it your feelings? Is it what grandpa and grandma taught you? Or is it established on the word of God? So we need to look at these. What do these things mean? And going back to Ephesians chapter 2 right now, as we look how Paul began this portion of Scripture writing to the church at Ephesus and through inspiration of Holy Spirit and preservation, writing to us today as well. First of all, we see the identification of what all men are outside of salvation. And as we look at this, we need to understand that it helps us in communicating to others where they are, but it should also humble us to remember that it's by God's grace that is our past that's under the blood, and that's not where we are today. He said, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. A dead thing, not think or reason, can it? Something that is dead, it's as innate as this piece of wood right here. And he said, well, they're breathing, they're walking, they're involved, they're doing things. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. That's why when we talk about the rebirth or being born again, it is a literal thing. It is becoming a new creation. Because anybody that is not yet saved, spiritually is dead. There's not been a birth there yet to start with uh, for going forward. And that's how Paul identifies for every man here. And we were dead in trespasses and sin. By God's grace, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you have been born again, that you have that new life, that you are a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Um, some would think of uh, John 3 being too simplistic. There's nothing simplistic about it all. It's how precious the Word of God is to us. And in verses 5 and 6 of John chapter 3, is, uh, Jesus was answering Nicodemus. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's one of the reasons that we need to be careful when we're talking with other people and how we identify them. When we're together with brothers and sisters in Christ, we often refer to each other as Brother Hoyle, as Brother Byler. When we're with unsaved or those that we don't know for sure that they're saved or not, they're not our brother. And we need to be very careful that we don't identify them as such. They're not born again. Spiritually speaking, they're not even born. So how can they be your brother if they're not born? Uh, So we need to be very careful on that. And that's what Jesus said here. It's not some deep theological debate to figure out, well, what was Jesus talking about? There's the physical birth and there's the spiritual birth. And until a baby is conceived, there is no baby. And there is life at that point. Until somebody's born spiritually, there is no spiritual being before God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Verse 14, Paul said, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And you may know, we know people that are not saved, and they'll say they're not saved. Yet they're praying for wisdom. And they'll go to passages like James 1. 
any man ask of wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Well, where does wisdom begin? With the fear of the Lord. So if there's no fear of the Lord, there can be no wisdom to go on beyond that, is there? And here the natural man receiveth not the Spirit of God, the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. So the one that is not born again yet, that's not a spiritual child of God, anything else is going to be foolishness to them. And they may say, well, I'm claiming this promise and this promise. They may be claiming it, but it has no value to them. It has no power in their life, and they're not going to know the stability, the, the courage that Brother Hoyle talked about this morning, the joy that we sang about in the hymn this morning when we're going through times of darkness, when we're going through times of trial. They may say, well, God's promised that peace, that courage, that joy. Yes, he has. And they may use every verse in Scripture to try to claim it, but they're not going to know it until they're born again. Now, the second aspect that Paul presented here in verse 2, he said, "Where in time past, ye, he's talking about the body of believers here, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He identified that Satan is active among unbelievers and controlling them. How is Satan active? We know that Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's restricted to time and to space. He does not know everything, does he? But he is the Father. He's the God of this world. Jesus uh, spoke of him when he was speaking to uh, the Pharisees there in John chapter 8. He said, you're of your father the devil. And he spoke again. He said, uh, he that speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of lies, referring to the devil. He doesn't have to be anywhere. He has great influence and power. There are other spirits, but also the influence on the rebellious heart of unsaved man. And to be reminded, not only to remind us for those that are not yet saved, but to remind us to humble our hearts and to encourage and to strengthen us that we're no longer held under that bondage. He said that... When in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. It's a reminder also. We need to be careful we don't allow ourselves to be drawn back to start walking in the course of this world, don't we? And it's easy to happen to us. Uh, driving home Thursday night, Jennifer ended up driving. We found a, we weren't, didn't know it was supposed to rain uh, Thursday night. And so I started out driving. We hit rain. We pulled to a gas station. She drove the rest of the way because wet and dark, don't go with cataracts uh, for driving. And then driving over this morning, Lonnie, farther over this way, you're going over the yellow line on the, uh, on the four-lane highway. I was over in the left-hand lane. You're going over a little bit. It's easy for us, isn't it, to get back into the course of this world. It's one of the reasons that God has put us in churches to have brothers and sisters, not only to exhort and encourage but also to reprove and to rebuke for pastors and teachers that are faithful in teaching God's word to reprove and to rebuke what we're doing because we can get caught back into the course, this old world. We need to be reminded that we are still in this world and we have to be careful that we don't get caught back into that course. According to Prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience and to remind us, and it, it should increase the 
humility, but also the patience in witnessing and the patience in working with those that are not saved. Should we be surprised that a blind man is blind? No. We get aggravated about it. Should we be surprised that a two-year-old asks why? No, we should not. We need to pray for patience, don't we, Melinda? (laughs) Uh, But we should not uh, be surprised. We need to be aware of it. So we're equipped and prepared and yield to be doing uh, what God would have us to do. Verse 3, describing that same fact, we want to say, among whom also we all have had our conversation times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The, one other point I want to bring out there, when we think of the old life, we so often think of the, what he's mentioned here, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. But Paul was very clear to remind us again that we need to be careful of, of the mind, the desires of the mind also, because that's where it starts. Uh, what a blessing to be in churches that are focused on corporately memorizing Scripture to be encouraging one another in that matter, to be memorizing the scriptures that God has given to us. So first he presented here the matter of every man, what we saw there in Romans, on the Romans road, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that every man, uh, by God's grace, we have been removed from that. But when we look at the matter of salvation, what does it mean? The first aspect we need to understand is there has to be the conviction of sin. Without a conviction of sin, there can be no salvation. That's why these that would seek to just do the quick uh, four spiritual laws or the quick easy prayerism, if there isn't an understanding from God's word of the holiness of God and to understand what sin is, there can be no conviction of sin. As we looked Thursday night at Adam and Eve when it said they were afraid, that word fear, the fear of the Lord, It was because there's a conviction of sin. They knew God. They knew what the sin was, and their heart was convicted. So without that understanding, in John chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, so when they continued asking him, Jesus, he lifted up himself and said unto them, and this is when they had brought the lady caught in adultery, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. Then they began to go away. They were convicted by their own conscience. But when was it that they were convicted? It wasn't in a debate, was it? Lord, We don't know what Lord Jesus Christ was writing, but you know what we do know? It was the Word of God, wasn't it? Because it was God that was writing it down there. And they were convicted by the Word of God. We need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to be caught into vain babblings, into arguments, uh, into debates in the wrong kind of a way. It's the Word of God that's going to bring the conviction of sin. That's why we have to be diligent to be pointing to the Word of God. This is what God's Word says. Then there's no debate about it, is there? It's settled. It's absolute in heaven. It's up to them what they do with it, but there's no debate about it. It's not my opinion. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul wrote, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. It's only by the word of God that we can know sin, that a man can know sin, and that conviction can be brought into the life. 
have you ever talked to somebody and uh, they said, well, I just don't feel convicted about that. Or I'm not under conviction. Let's stop a minute. They may not be honest with themselves. Or they're not being honest with what they're communicating outwardly because they're putting this barrier up. You may know somebody. If not, I'm sure you have read or heard of somebody that has an addiction. And they say, I'm not addicted. I can give up jelly beans anytime I want to. Just try me and see. Uh, I don't have an addiction. Uh, It's a denial, isn't it? Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul said, Therefore thou art excusable, O man. As Paul was presenting from the Scriptures the Word of God, he said, Thou art inexcusable, O man. In Romans chapter 1, just before that, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. He said, every man. And then he went on here to say, thou art excusable, O man. What man is going to stand before God and be able to give an excuse that I never had a clue of who God is? No. God brings under conviction. It's a matter of what, how that conviction is dealt with <clears throat> as we hear the word of God. And on down in Romans chapter 2, Paul wrote in verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Here Paul was believing with, or dealing with those that uh, were unbelievers, and they're saying, well, I can escape the judgment. There's going to be a way to get out of it. There's a lady that we had a prolonged opportunity with in Ontario, clearly not saved. She knew she was not saved. She knew she needed to get saved. Before she moved from town, she said, God and I have an agreement with each other. She wanted to live her sinful life until a point that she was ready to get saved. And we challenged her that God is very clear that there's a time we do not know that he'll turn a man over to the lust of their own hearts. And that's an example of what Paul was writing here, the one that uh, is willing to say that he's going to somehow escape the judgment of God. How about those that say, well, after the rapture occurs, if all this is true, after the rapture occurs, then I'm going to get saved. I believe God's word is very clear in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that there's going to be a strong delusion sent to those that have rejected the gospel already. That after the rapture, they're going to walk in that delusion and they will have lost their last opportunity, their last chance to get saved. Uh, and that's really a picture of what Paul was writing here, that saying, well, I can escape the judgment. I'll wait until a convenient time on my deathbed. I want to enjoy the pleasures of this life up until then. And then verse 4, he said, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Here he's dealing with those that are despising God's long-suffering goodness. God's long-suffering to bring that conviction to heart. And there may be somebody here today that's not saved. And you know you're struggling with some areas in your own life. What you're doing is exactly what Paul was warning about right here. Those that you're despising God's long-suffering by saying, 
at a more convenient time. Maybe later I'll try it. And Paul's very clearly here saying that you're rejecting it. That leadeth thee to repentance. So many get caught up in this thing of repentance as thinking that it's a matter of works. And they try to get away from it. Well, you can't, works have nothing to do with salvation. We're going to look at that a little bit more. God leads to repentance. But God's word is very clear that every individual is personally responsible for either repenting or rejecting and turning the other way. Uh, on down in verse 5 of the same chapter of chapter 2, Paul dealt with that. He said, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That word impenitent heart is a compound word in the Greek that literally means not repentant. Has nothing to do with penance or works that the Catholics would talk about. It literally means not willing to change your mind and to turn and to go another direction. The repentance is the responsibility of every individual. And very clearly, every individual comes to a place. Remember what we talked about Thursday night, making choices. And every individual comes to a point of making a choice of repentance or of an impenitent heart because of the hardness of heart. So now we come to the matter of salvation. Conviction is brought upon the heart of men to bring men to the point of that conviction of heart to choose. Are you going to repent or is your heart going to be what Paul described here as impenitent, not repenting? No in-between ground there, is there? Not a more convenient time, is there? The hardness, the folly of saying at a more convenient time because you despise God's long-suffering of continuing to deal with you. The matter of salvation. John 3.16, probably one of the first verses that many memorize. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Can it get any simpler than that? Absolutely not. That's why men create confusion out of it. They redefine the words. You may, uh, and Charles Spurgeon, a great soul winner, but Charles Spurgeon redefined that word whosoever. It didn't mean everybody, according to his definition. He had to develop this other definition because he was caught up into this system of Calvinism, of Calvinistic theology. Who are you before God to change the meaning of the words that God, the Holy Spirit, gave to men, inspired and preserved for all generations? God forbid. That's no different than what God warned about of taking away or adding to the Word of God. And it'll carry the same punishment. Uh, So, whosoever means just that. Whosoever, anybody... Don't redefine the words of God. Salvation was offered to all men. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show 
the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here Paul presented for the one that is saved of what lies ahead for us as well. But even within this passage, a passage, verses 8 and 9, often used when we're giving thanks to God for salvation or when we're witnessing to others, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There are those that would confuse the very basic and simple truth that God has given to us there. I am a strong, strong proponent of education. I am a strong, strong warner of the wrong kind of education or thing identified as education. And sometimes men get so educated that they've lost all understanding. Uh, I shared with somebody yesterday, my parents uh, sold our house in Six Mile to one of the professors on my graduate committee at Clemson when my parents moved to Rock Hill. And my mom was a very, very smart, smart in every way kind of a woman. She graduated high school. She was a homemaker, a housewife and a mother all of her life. And I'm very blessed and fortunate that I was. But sometimes she would belittle herself as not being educated or not being smart. I bet she's one of the smartest. But they sold the house in October and November, first really cold spell. I had come back to my room from... This was before cell phones. This was back in the 70s. Uh, From the library, when my roommate said that Dr. So-and-so called and wants you to call him immediately. So I called him, and he was irate because my parents sold him the house with a furnace that didn't work uh, and didn't tell him or warn him about it. So I was going through, did you check the pilot light? Did you do this and this? And he'd done all of that. I said, well, I know it was working the end of the season. Let me call my folks. So I called him. And this is when you paid by the minute for a long-distance phone call, too. My mom, first thing, laughed. She said, well, did he check the thermostat? And, well, that's an assumption. I called him back. He didn't even check the thermostat. You know, he was educated beyond his common sense, any common sense. And that's what happens so often regarding spiritual things, too, that there are those that get uh, Dr. Jack Hiles. Praise God for pastors. Uh, He'd like to be known as doctor and the confusion that he brought as a result of that. And there are those that would take this passage and say, it is the gift of God. Well, now we need to sit and think what is it is, which are in italics here anyway. Uh, is that for understanding? It is. What does it is mean? Hmm. Who is it? It is. And they would say, well, it has to be uh, the grace. Well, by definition, grace is a gift has to be faith. No, if we put it in the context and realize that within the original transcripts, manuscripts anyway, verses 1 through 10 are just one sentence. It's a long sentence. And it's identified that the subject that's being talked about down here is the matter of salvation. Salvation is the gift of God. But there are those who would say, no, God only gives faith to those who was chosen to give faith to. And they try to confuse to created an issue there. But clearly, salvation is a gift of God, and it's by faith. And they stop right there. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
and we can take time. We're not going to this morning. And it's one of the reasons I had such a struggle of how to put this together for one message of what faith is. There are two kinds of believing, the kind that's just the head knowledge and the kind that's the heart, which is the transformation, when a transformation takes place. And that's what's being talked about here because that's when salvation occurs. And this is where we really come to understand the difference between the two. Salvation that's the head knowledge anybody and everybody can have. Uh, right here in Wake Forest, um, I think it used to be considered Wake Forest, this address. You have a, in, an institution of higher learning, uh, I think. Uh, they call it a theological seminary. Uh, it's, I was saved in a Southern Baptist church by God's grace back in days when in the church where there was sound. But I read and just did some researching a little bit yesterday to make sure it was sound. They just hired a female professor that is a strong protector and promoter of the LGBTQ rights and agenda. And they just hired her to come onto their faculty and staff here to train men to be spiritual leaders, to be, quote, pastors and leaders within. Uh, how she has a head knowledge, she has a lot of knowledge. The, uh, the devils believe there is one God, they have that head knowledge. So what's the difference between them and one that is born again? There's never been repentance, has there? And that's why this matter of repentance is so critical. And we have to make sure that people, it's not adding works to it whatsoever. We're going to take just a few minutes. I'm going to read some passages. If you'll write them down uh, as we go through, just write the references so you can take time later if you'd like to go back to look at them. But... Ezekiel 18.30, the one that I read that came from my devotions, which really uh, caused me for it to be a matter of meditation of, in my own life. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn. These are two commands. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. And actually, same word being used there. But it shows very clearly to us that repentance is a change of mind. But what does that include? A change in action, doesn't it? A change in attitude. I don't know. Um, I won't uh, choose ladies. I'll choose men. If I pick a tie out, which uh, it's not too uncommon for me to pick one out to put on and uh, Jennifer will say, that does not go with what you're wearing. Do you know what I do? I change my mind. When I change my mind, do I go ahead and put that tie on? No. I put it back. I say, well, you pick one out that goes. Okay. I put one on that does uh, match. We can look at anything in our lives when we change our mind on something. It's only the fool that's going to continue to go on the direction that you just change your mind about, isn't it? It's the same way with what we're talking about in scriptural things, but a far greater price tag for failing to do. So as we look in Ezekiel, we get that foundation right there from the very beginning. Repent and turn. So how important was it? And I'm just going to go through several passages to highlight the importance of repentance that so many want to eliminate. Matthew 3, 8 uh, was uh, John the Baptist, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. 
So very clearly, in the very beginning, the preaching of repentance, what was he saying? There's going to be a change that's going to produce fruits that are going to be seen, isn't it? There's going to be a change of life because of the turning that has occurred. In Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, or literally because of repentance. Matthew 9.13, Jesus with a command to his disciples But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't say, I came to call sinners to faith, did he? I came to call them to repentance. Because when genuine repentance takes place, faith is the, they can't be separated. Once the repentance has taken place, if I've turned, what am I turning to? It's to the faith of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for or because of the remission of sins. Mark 2, verse 17, When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance that need to turn from sin, to turn to God for salvation. Luke uh, chapter 3 and verse 3, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance. That wasn't that baptism caused them to repent, it was because it was a sign, an indication for the remission of sins. And then verse 8, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Um, in Matthew 4, verse 17, the record of Jesus as he began his earthly ministry, the first word that it gives that he said was repent. Matthew four seventeen. from that time Jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Acts 2.38, as uh, after Jesus had ascended and there Peter preaching, he said, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 3, verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Again, very clear. The command to repent, that turning, that changing of mind and that turning be converted. What's the conversion? the new birth, being born again, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts twenty six twenty, Paul speaking, said, But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all. So here is, he's talking about when he was preaching to the Gentiles. He said, I showed unto them first that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. The matter of, as we talk about salvation, it is faith. But faith is not something of just this nice, fluffy thing or just saying some words. It is something that does require action, and it's going to cause a change in action. Does it create perfection? Absolutely not. The only thing perfect anybody in here is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we stand before God under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is working to transform lives. But it's that yielded to him and that working and going forward. 
And then in Ephesians 2.10, the closing of this portion here, as Paul was writing on the matter of salvation, he said, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus, that new birth, that new creation. We are His workmanship. That means that we are something that is ongoing. For those of you that are parents, it's ongoing training your children, isn't it? Uh, it doesn't end when they leave home either. It's just a totally different perspective. Uh, it's more prayer. I shouldn't say it's more prayerful. It's less action and it's prayer. Uh, you don't have as much of the active part, but it's a whole lot of prayer at that point. But we are his workmanship. He's continuing to work, to mold, and to shape in that new creation that's come about unto good works. Notice that it's something specific that we've been created unto, isn't it? It's not to enjoy the pleasures of this world. It's unto, un, unto good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ooh, there's that word that God before ordained. Praise God that he's established that all that are born again, that he has a path and a plan and a purpose to transform us more into the image of his dear son. James wrote about the same concept here when he said in James chapter 2, But wilt thou know, vain man, that faith without works is dead? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The matter of salvation, words have meaning. We need to understand what those meanings are. First of all, for those of us that are born again, it ought to cause us to be all the more humbled and all the more grateful and all the more secure in our salvation. It should also make us all the more concerned that we're clearly, clearly communicating the gospel when we're witnessing to other people. It should also cause us, as the Lord looked upon the multitudes and He was moved with compassion, it really ought to cause us to be moved with greater compassion when we see people that are in these churches and churches and churches that they have no understanding of what the true gospel is and they've been deceived by a false gospel and to pray and to seek to be used to help them to understand. Let's pray.